Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Isn't it good to just be in this place and worship together? Um, we are continuing our series this morning on the parables. He told stories, and we've talked for several weeks about... We took a little break for Holy Week and, and Easter, but we've talked for several weeks about these parables. And uh, this morning we have the opportunity to take a look at one that's, that's very simple. It's a small, short, simple parable. And so um, I'm sure your prayer is that this will be a small, short, simple message, right, this morning? <laughs> I think I can accomplish that. <clears throat> Let's pray together as we get into his word. God, we thank you this morning for who you are. Thank you that we get to hear from you this morning because your word is from you. And and our prayer this morning is that you would speak to us, that you would somehow, in the way that only you do, speak to our hearts, illuminate, light up your word in our hearts so that it has a transforming type of power, so that it somehow through your spirit, draws us closer to you, and we get to know you a little better this morning. God, we ask for this. We truly ask that you would change us, that you would change our hearts, that you would give us a glimpse of truth in such a way that life changes, that our our posture, our response, the way we live every day would be different somehow. We're grateful for how you do this, and we look to you for it, because you're a good God. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So we are in Matthew 21. If you have a Bible, turn to it. If not, it's going to be on the screen, or just download the app on your phone, which seems to be the most popular way today. Um, And we're going to read Matthew 21, verses 28 to 32 together. This is the parable of the two sons. We have two brothers here, and uh, Jesus is speaking to a very particular crowd in this parable. So let's read it together. Matthew 21, verses 28 to 32. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said, The same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said, being the chief priests and scribes, we'll talk about that in a minute. They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors... And the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. So here we are. We're jumping into the middle of a conversation here. Um, we're, We're actually right in the middle of an exchange between Jesus and who in Scripture are these Pharisees and these scribes. And so I think what we need to do for a minute is we need to kind of get some context from Matthew 21. What we see in terms of this time period so that we can understand this conversation is Jesus has just come into the city 
And it's what we commonly know as what? The triumphal entry. How many of you guys are familiar with that? Jesus had asked his disciples to go get a donkey for him. In this, in essence, or in reality, fulfilled a prophecy in the Old Testament that he would come in on a donkey. And they get the donkey for him, and, and they throw some, some cloaks on it, and he gets onto the donkey, and he rides in to the city on a donkey. And what we see here is this group of people that have gathered who really, as we see in Scripture, had just witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus, if you know that story, Lazarus had died and Jesus had called him forward and, and Lazarus had been raised from the dead. They had seen his miracles. They'd heard his teachings. This, by the way, becomes the same crowd later on, not too long from now, that's calling for his crucifixion, right? But here they are, waving palms. Anybody as a kid go to church and Palm Sunday and get the little tree branch and wonder what that was about? Um, they're waving palms, and they're yelling in the streets, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna, Hosanna. They're recognizing as Jesus comes into the city that he is the Messiah, that he is the long-awaited one. He is, although they didn't understand how in this moment, he is the Savior, and here he comes, and they're shouting Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. And they're, and they're, they're in essence, worshiping him as he comes in on this donkey. Jesus, in the beginning of Matthew 21, has the triumphal entry. Where does he go right after this? Jesus walks right into the temple. And this is a very famous story where Jesus walks into the temple. And I love this about Jesus, right? He's not some, um, you know, British-looking, blue-eyed, effeminate guy with a robe just kind of floating around, right? He, as, 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 we've, as we've pictured him, Jesus, the carpenter, walks in and flips the tables in the temple, and he's angry. He says to them, you're not going to make my house a den of robbers. This is, my house is a house of prayer, he says. And what we hear from Jesus is, is this, this, this word, my house. And what do the chief priests and the, and the scribes recognize this to be? They look at him and they see that he is saying this is his house. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming divinity. And he walks in and he sees just, what he sees is he sees money changers and he sees people um, uh, exchanging money in the temple, ripping off their fellow citizens. And, and he walks into the temple and recognizes this is totally corrupt. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. This is supposed to be a place where people exchange um, with God. And, and what it's turned into is a bunch of robbers and thieves and people ripping off their fellow man. And, and they're walking around as if they're better than everybody else. And, and they're, they're looking as if they're haughty and somehow these... Uh, these appropriate, wonderful people who really worship God, and in essence, inside they're rotten, and inside they're doing things that are, that are completely deceptive. They're hypocrites, and it angered Jesus to such a degree that when he walks into the temple, he walks up to the table and starts flipping them. He says, my house is a house of prayer, and you're turning it into a den of robbers. This is the context of this conversation. The priests and the scribes get upset with him, and as he does this, he leaves the temple, as we further see in Matthew 21. And the lame and the blind begin to come to him, and he heals them. 
So he's come in on the donkey. He's gone into the temple and purged the temple and flipped the tables. And now the lame and the blind are coming to him. And he's healing them. He's having compassion on them. Compassion, as we see in the life of Jesus, that isn't some sort of intellectual assent to someone else's trouble. It isn't just, ah, oh, I feel bad. But compassion in the truest sense of the word, where he enters into the trouble of another, and he does something about it. And he heals the blind. And he heals the lame. And the chief priests begin to see the children in the temple cry out to him, Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David. And they become enraged. The Bible says the chief priests and the scribes are indignant about what Jesus is doing. This, this narrative is culminating in walking and in, in, in escalating towards the cross. Where they would bring him to his crucifixion. And so Jesus, in these moments, is claiming and speaking in such a way that the chief priests and all of those around him would recognize that he is being looked at as the Messiah and he is owning that. As he says, my house, as he heals. And they're indignant. So here we are in verses 28 to 32. Jesus in the, verse, in the verses prior has already begun this conversation. And they're talking about John the Baptist in the conversation. And Jesus traps the Pharisees and the scribes. And he looks to them and he says something about John the Baptist that is revealed in Scripture as something that, that in essence, puts them between a rock and a hard place. Because here they are having this conversation and the crowds of people are present. And Jesus asks them, do you believe that the work that John the Baptist did is from heaven? And, and what the, the Pharisees and the scribes recognize is they don't want to say John the Baptist, his message of repentance and believing is, is from heaven because that ticked them off, right? John the Baptist showed them up, and, and, and a lot of people followed him, and it made them angry. But at the same time, while the priests are standing there, they recognize that the crowds that are around really like John the Baptist, and so they're trapped. And they respond to Jesus, I don't know. They can't say no because the crowds are going to get ticked. They can't say yes, because they can't believe that John the Baptist's message was from heaven because it was in contradiction with theirs, because he showed them up. And so they have to look at Jesus, and it says that in Scripture. They, they, they feel trapped because of the crowds. And so they respond here, these people who are supposed to know everything, the people who are the ones that are uh, the leaders of the community. There are the scribes, which are the lawyers and those who interpret Jewish law. The Pharisees, which are community leaders and, and those who would be in charge of everyone and who would dictate things. Those who are supposed to know everything. They get trapped by Jesus and they have to respond with, I don't know. And then Jesus goes into this story. And I love this story because Jesus, in this quick couple of verses, cuts right to the heart of who they are. And, and, and as we fast forward to our reality here, as we look to the word of God to dictate in our hearts and in our lives how we should live and how we should think about things, he cuts to the heart of who we are too. So in the context of that conversation, in that narrative, Jesus, in front of these Pharisees, says these words. What do you think? A man has two sons. And he went to the first son, and he said, go work in the vineyard. And he answered, 
in essence, no. How many of you guys have been there? <laughs> My mother just raised her hand. She's the only one <laughs> in the congregation. I mean, everybody nodded, but she's got to raise her hand. <laughs> so a dad comes to the first boy, and what we see here, we see in essence really four responses. It looks like two, but we see four responses. We see the first son say to the dad, no. This would have been shocking to them. Because in that day, a complete rejection of the will of a father, of a command of a father, would have been just ridiculous. It would have been unheard of. It would have been something that you would not expect a son to respond to his father and do. Things have changed, have they not? I mean, really, what what the context of this understanding, culturally and in their minds, would have been is, here is a father who has provided everything for his kids, Every scrap of food that they've stuffed in their face, their, their roof over their head, the, the clothing on their back, the capability of life and everything that they need and everything they could ever want in their inheritance is all going to come from this father. So when the father says, I want you to go work in the vineyard, there's really only one response, right? Yes. And the first son says, no, I'm not going. The second son Jesus says, the father comes to him and says the same thing. I want you to go to the vineyard, and I want you to work. And he says, yeah, I'll go right away. Yes, I go, sir. That's how it's translated. Yes, I do. And on the outside, who looks better? I mean, it becomes very clear. The first son, are you, the, the, the guttural response to that is, are you kidding me? He said, no. What do you mean you said no? Everything I have, everything you have that's good in your life came from this dad. And he tells you to go work and you say no, an absolute rejection. The second son, um, on the outside, on the surface, gives a response that's more appropriate, that's more acceptable, that is exactly what you would expect. Yes, I go, sir, right now. I'm on my way. He says it in a way that it's as if to say, I'm on my way. I'm going right now to the vineyard to work. I'm responding in obedience immediately. But then what are the other two responses? Because I said there's four. In reality, what actually happens is the first son, who said no, comes to his senses, recognizes, oh, who dad is and what dad's asked him to do. And the scripture says he changed his mind. That word is the word for repentance. He turned. Not lip service, but actual life-changing repentance. And he went and he worked in the field. The second son is the ultimate description of what? Lip service. Yes, I go right now. I'll be right there, Dad, right? On the Xbox. I'm on my way. (laughs) And he never goes. He never does what his father asked him to do. Then Jesus goes on, and he just jabs these guys verbally right in the chin. He says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes who heard the word of John the Baptist to repent and believe, they believed him, and you, you didn't. 
You even saw what John the Baptist did, and you still didn't believe. And I say to you, this is Jesus speaking to these chief priests, the leaders of the community, and the lawyers who interpret the law, and he looks at them right in their optic stem and says, you are not getting into the kingdom of heaven before the prostitutes and the tax collectors. How many of you guys think this made them a little upset? (laughs) I love this about Jesus. I love this about Jesus because this was his message, and it's his message to me. I love this about Jesus because this was his heart. He didn't care what you looked like. He didn't care uh, how you carried yourself. What God is getting to in our lives through his word and what Jesus was cutting to the heart of in the midst of the community leaders as he was heading to the cross was this. You can look and say, you can look like any way you want, you can say whatever you want, but what matters is what's in your heart. And what's in your heart produces a fruit in your life that actually does something. Amen? That's what Jesus was getting at. I mean, this was radical. This was leading to his death, folks. He knew that what he was saying was going to lead to the crucifixion because they weren't going to put up with this. But he knew that's what God had called him to do, and that's where he was headed. So he spoke truth in a way that was vicious to these Pharisees. And, And here's the interesting thing about the word of God and what we see in the life of Jesus is when he was vicious, when he was, when he was speaking truth in such a way that was jabbing, he was talking to the people who were supposed to be the good ones. And his compassion in his heart was for those who were the prostitutes and the tax collectors. I mean, it turns society in this moment's culture in this moment's idea of the hierarchy of things completely upside down. I mean, who was the prostitutes? Obviously, we know they're, they're among us today. In my vocation as a prosecutor, I, in special victims work, I speak to prostitutes often. And here's what I recognize sitting with women in this situation in life. is, is that there is a very front of the mind readily understanding that their life isn't where it's supposed to be. There is a very uh, prevalent understanding that things are not going well and a wish that things were different. In this day, it's no different. The prostitutes would have been those that were outside of culture, outside of Jewish life, not talked to, untouchable, those who had completely rejected the law and were living in such a way that that was not acceptable to the norms of human society, and they would have been outcast. The tax collectors equally, if not more, disdained than that. These were men who had chosen as a vocation that they would rip off their own people and kick the money to the oppressors of the Jews. So what they were doing is they were going around and they were collecting taxes for Rome. These were those who occupied and oppressed the Jewish people, and they were working for them in in the ultimate sense of betrayal. They were going to collect taxes for the Romans, and the Romans said, anything above and beyond what we're expecting, you get to keep for yourself. So they were, they were traveling, and they were ripping off their own people 
kicking back to the Romans, and, and as you can imagine, hated. And so he spoke right to the Pharisees about those that would be outcasts, those that would be hated. And what he said is they heard the message of John the Baptist. Repent, turn your life around, and believe, and you'll be saved. And they responded to it. But you, you heard it and you didn't respond. These Pharisees and these scribes are the men that Jesus had previously looked at and said, you're like a whitewashed tomb. What a remarkable thing to say. You're like a whitewashed tomb, meaning you're painted really nice on the outside. It's all white. It's all beautiful. But inside, you're like a dead grave. He looked at him again and he said, you're like a cup on the outside that looks pristine and clean. And as you see that cup on the outside, it looks like a cup that you would love to drink from. But on the inside, it's full of garbage and dirt. What's Jesus getting at? Your lip service is meaningless. Your whitewashed, beautiful look on the outside as you walk around, trying to make it seem as though you're wonderful so that everybody looks at you and says, you must be great, you must be a wonderful Christian, is completely meaningless if inside your heart it's completely filthy and dirty and in rejection of God and repentance. Does that make sense? But to that person who on the outside looks desperate, to that person who on the outside looks outcast, to that person who on the outside looks as if you're one of those that others socially would reject or says you're not good enough, you're living in such a way that that we want you outside of our community, outside of the norms of the way we interact. If your heart were to somehow respond, if your heart were to somehow recognize that you needed Jesus, that you needed to repent and to turn and to have someone come in and rescue you, to have change happen in your heart, if that was to be the case, you're more likely to enter the kingdom of heaven than the guy who tries to look good but inside is dead. He goes to the power elite, and he says, you got less of a chance of getting into the kingdom of God than those who you consider are the lowest of the low of the low. I got to tell you that part of the gospel that we preach the gospel that we see in the word of God is this honest, sincere recognition of our own sin, is it not? Part of why I love to be here with you and sing the songs we sing and worship together is because of a very deep, genuine recognition that I need Jesus. That it doesn't matter how good we look and how much we pretend and, and what kind of show we can put on. We can throw on a suit. You can look wonderful. We can show up to church every day with a big smile on our face and glad hand and slap backs and, and say, oh, how wonderful is it to be here and eat Nate's bagels, which are amazing. And we can do all of that week to week. But if there's nothing going on in our hearts that is 
turning us, if there's no sense of repentance that is craving God to change us, if there's not a recognition of a need for Jesus to do something in our life that makes us different, that produces from our hearts a fruit in our life that actually causes us to be different, then all of it's for nothing. Does it make any difference? Can I tell you, I have never been interested in some sort of religious, just show up, check the box, I went to church, I fulfilled my cultural obligation, I must be okay, garbage. Never been interested in that. Never forget as a 16-year-old boy who had received Jesus as a young, young, probably 8-year-old, I remember at 16, living life my own way, feeling as though this father who had provided everything for me, this father in heaven who had given me life, really didn't have any idea about how I was supposed to live my life. I was in charge. I was going to do things my own way. And I remember coming head-on into a collision with this idea that if God is God, and he is who he says he is, then it must mean I got to do things different. Anybody remember that moment in life? The recognition that he's smarter than I am, that if he made me, he knows what he made me for, that he actually should be in charge, and I'm only going to screw things up. That recognition, that moment where you come to the end of yourself, and you look to God, and you just say, you know what? If you are who you say you are, then you should be in charge. That prayer that you have of repentance that says, turn me, God, and I'll be turned. That's what Jesus is getting at. You know, it's easy sometimes, easier, for someone whose life is outwardly a mess to come to the end of themselves and say, oh, I need change. I need to repent. I need something different. And Jesus is speaking to those whose life is outwardly in order. Who thinks more of themselves than they ought to. Who actually thinks they're in charge. And that they know what's best for them. And what he's saying is, that person who's outwardly a mess, who's come to the end of themselves, who knows they need repentance, they're getting into the kingdom of God before you are. There is this need in us to come to the end of ourselves, to forget about the stupid whitewashed shell that everybody thinks looks so wonderful, and to recognize in and of myself, I'm a mess. And I repent. I, like the first son, change my mind. I have, like the first son, looked at my father who who has given me everything, has given me life, has given me everything I need. Everything good in my life has come from God. And I actually looked at him when he's asked me to live a certain way, when he's asked me to do something, and I've said no. And now I change my mind. And I recognize in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only thing he's asking me to do is to completely rely on him for salvation and for life. And I change my mind. I repent. And I'll do it. That's who I want to be. That's who I need to be. That's that's where we need to get to. That's what Jesus is, is cutting to the heart of. 
And for those who, who have walked around with the shell trying to keep up the facade, the whitewashed uh, facade of being some churchy, Christian, glad-handing, just, just wonderfulness, none of that matters. What's going on in your heart? Jesus doesn't care about that. He cares about what's going on in your heart. Have you come to that place where in a gut way, you alone in that moment just respond to him and recognize your own sin and your need for salvation and for him to turn you so you can be turned? Can I tell you when Jesus' grace encounters your life and changes your heart and he begins to do something inside of you, the fruit of that is life change. Your life begins to change. This isn't, please don't hear me, because what Jesus is not saying here is some idea of works-based salvation. It's not about you going out to the vineyard and working so you can earn something. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the difference between Christianity and every other system of thought on the planet. It's not about you working to earn something. It's about you recognizing your need for him, and he comes in. He's already done it. Jesus has done everything that needs to be done to save and change and redeem our lives. Amen? If you could add to your salvation in Galatians, Paul says Christ died for nothing. You're not bringing anything to the table. Jesus has done it. And what what he's asking for is a heart response of repentance. A heart response that says, Dad, I recognize you've given me everything. And I change my mind. I turn towards you. And then what he does is he, he begins to work in your hearts. And as our life changes, as we begin to live differently, it's not to earn brownie points. It's not some legalistic works thing. As he changes our hearts and we change our mind and we turn and we begin to live differently, it's out of worship and gratefulness that our life begins to change. It's the fruit of our life. Like when you plant a tree, it grows and bears fruit. When that is planted deep into your heart, your life begins to change and and you grow into a place where your life produces fruit. And what this parable is saying is that life that's producing fruit is the one that's really repented. And the life that looks good but is producing no fruit is, is dead inside. The change, the repentance has not happened. That's what the parable's saying. The Bible clearly describes for us what that fruit is. It's not some sort of haughty, tie-buttoned-up, legalistic, I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't believe in this, I don't like that. Is that what it is? No. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit that comes from a life that's repentant is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. That's what begins to happen in our lives. We don't measure what God's doing in our hearts by necessarily what movies you watch or what places you spend your money at, although some of those things might matter. But really, what really matters, we, we've, we've made a list of stupid things that are supposed to matter. What really matters is how do you treat each other? How do you love your wife? How do you love your husband? How do you treat your kids? How do you treat your coworkers? Do you love in a way that's sacrificial? Do you look at others more highly than you look at yourself? Or is everything about you? Are you patient? Are you kind? Do you exhibit self-control? 
Can I tell you the devastation and the sin and the destruction of people's lives that I see in, in the DA's office in criminal law as, as I prosecute child abuse cases and homicide cases and rape cases? Can I tell you all of that devastation that I see in my job every single day and that I know some of you see in, in the worlds that you vocationally live in? It comes from lives living out there that are ravaging other people because they have no self-control. They have no kindness, no patience, no love. None of those things are in their lives. And so they destroy everybody around them. And what God is saying is, I need a group of people who have repented and responded to the gospel so that the fruit of their lives begins and they start loving each other, being kind towards each other, being patient, living with self-control. When I see some 33-year-old perpetrator this week who devastates a little six-year-old girl out of selfishness and perversion, my heart is broken and I say, God, I can't fix this, even if he goes to prison for the rest of his life. But the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes a heart and enables someone to love somebody else and exhibit self-control, that's where the change, where real life is. Amen? Amen. Folks, we need Jesus and we need to repent. And we need to ask him to produce in us his fruit. Amen? Amen? No more of this whitewash, haughty, surfacy, fake, churchy, pharisaical garbage. Let's cut right to the heart of where Jesus wants us to be. And just in honesty and in repentance, say, God, turn me, and I'll be turned. Change me, and I'll be changed in response to what you've done in response to the type of father that you are. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. And we, this morning, in response to your word, ask that you would help us to get real, to put away the facade, to put away the the Pharisee tendency in our lives. And to come to a place in our heart of true repentance, of real change. God, whether it be in these moments corporately as we're together or privately this week, help each of us to come to that place with you. My prayer for me this morning is that you would change me. Help us all to recognize our need for real repentance that produces real fruit. Help me to be more patient. Help me to be more kind, more loving. Help me to have more self-control. God, produce fruit in me, not because of my work, but because of yours, because of what you've done. We trust you in this. In Jesus' name, everybody said.